0: Thinking Aloud: Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with Parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring psi and the visual arts. My guest is Professor Etzel Cardenia. He is the Thorsen Professor of Psychology at Lund University in Sweden, where he is the Director of the Center for Research on Consciousness and Anomalistic Psychology. His publications include the books Altering Consciousness and Varieties of Anomalous Experience. A previous interview with Etzel, which I'm going to link to right now, you may find very interesting, is about the landmark paper that he published in the American Psychologist, the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association, in which he surveyed meta-analyses covering 1,400 different experiments in parapsychology and showing how they are both very successful and very rigorous. I think you'll enjoy that interview if you haven't already seen it. Etzel is in Sweden and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Etzel. It's a great pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you
1: for inviting me.
0: We'll be talking about the visual arts and parapsychology and the paranormal or psi in general. and It occurred to me during the Middle Ages and up to the Renaissance, uh, most of the Western art was done under the auspices of the church. So, there's deep spiritual connections there as well. But then since the Renaissance, it seems to me that up until the modern or postmodern period, Western art was largely very representational and very, I would have to say,
1: sensate or materialistic. Yes, although I would say that also the medieval art was representational. It was taking women or men and just placing them as saints or the Virgin or Jesus. But it was still, in I think very clear ways, depiction of something that could be seen in some way, perhaps with some arrangement with creating a cross but the people that you saw there were people that you could see every day. And the big switch I think that starts happening towards the end of the nineteenth century and more clearly at the beginning of the twentieth century is that there is a certain focus on me as creator, what is happening in my experience, not what I am what am I seeing that other people are seeing in the same way. And, and I think that, in a sense, and I was thinking for this interview, uh, that it, it has been a great movement that psychology is just starting to get aware of, sort of the, modern, the modernist view that all of a sudden it is not as if art or science are created in a detached way by non-sentient beings, all of a sudden the focus is reflected back. And it happens in the arts very clearly, in literature. Not that it had not happened ever before, but it wasn't the focus. And now when you get very clearly with the expressionist, you have somebody like Edvard Munch. Uh, He is not only depicting women. He is depicting his sensations, his notion that there are flows, protoplasmic kind of forces in between the the women and men, sort of the war of the sexes, is not, for him, just a nice phrase. It is a back and forth of flows of miasmic lava kind of colors and strengths and energies. And, and that's a different thing than um, the previous religious art, with a few exceptions. If you go to the Bosch, or Bruegel, and you say, wow, where did they get those visions? They, they are depicting, you know, devils and creatures that you cannot see every day. I hope that I do not get to see them, but those were very much the exception.
0: Well, you mentioned Edvard Munch, and uh, interestingly, I uh, recently did uh, an interview with James Tunney on esoteric traditions of Sweden. And I know Munch was not Swedish, but uh, he was a close friend of August Strindberg, who was Swedish. Uh, Munch was Norwegian. Norwegian, Norwegian. And uh, Strindberg uh, it was both a great playwright, and I think uh, as well a novelist, but also a visual artist who kept a lengthy occult diary of his inner explorations, which gets reflected in his paintings.
1: Yes, and in his work, and in his plays, and in the occult diary, I I used Steinbeck, which is how they pronounce his name here. I use Stringberg as an example of someone who I think thought himself as a psychic, uh, but I think mostly what he was doing was projecting uh, his own weaknesses and wishes and desires and so on. So there is, for example, a very famous passage, I think it's from the occult diary, where he had all kinds of problems with with his women, with um, his wives and lovers. And one of them, there's a wife who goes and they have separated. She has married somebody else. And then he starts writing and saying, well, now you want me to be there, even though it is your wedding night. You are you have come here spiritually to me. You know, how evil of you to be still desiring me. And I think, well, if that is not an example of projection, I don't know what it is. (laughs) Uh, so I think what he was saying is what he would like to have been doing rather than what his ex, his ex was probably happy to get be rid of him because he was a genius, but a, an extremely difficult person to be around. Uh, so they, you know, he, he's one person who I think had an awareness, was very much into all kinds of cool things. He was an alchemist. A lot of his time he spent doing alchemical work, uh, but in his work, he is traversing between the level of waking reality, dreaming reality. Uh, I mean, one of his masterpieces is called a dream play, and, and what it does is to try to represent a number of things in which the unity of time and space are not the way they are in waking. State It is like a dream where suddenly you could age a lot. You could be in another place, transported immediately to another place. So it's a fantastic play. And in another representation of suddenly the the focus is not on, okay, I'm going to say to depict or describe what other people are watching. But I'm going to try to depict what I am sensing and the kinds of associations I have and the kinds of states, altered states that I have, and that becomes very much a central aspect of literature, but also of art.
0: Well, I think it's fair to say that in in the world of art, visual art and literature and poetry, that uh, many of the fine distinctions a parapsychologist would make between a psi experience versus an altered state of consciousness versus maybe some sort of uh, neurotic episode in the psyche, these things all get mixed together. Yeah,
1: as in life. (laughs) As in life, really what happens is... um, when we do an experiment, we, we are perhaps doing more fiction than a novelist is doing. Because what does a novelist do? Uh, let's say he abstracts things from uh, all of the var- var- variegated sets of happenings and occurrences and thoughts and just filters it and comes up with something that is very clear and purified. Uh, but still, you can send sort of a sequence and he can give you a sense of what happened, let's say, in the awareness of a character throughout a number of hours in a lot of detail. When I take somebody to a lab, I am suddenly abstracting. All that the person is feeling and sensing and where she or he came from and what she or he's going to be doing later and what is important. I am abstracting from all of that just a tiny bit and thinking that I am getting a good sense of reality. And it is a fiction. It is a very purified and uh, oftentimes very impoverished filtration of what actually happens in real life. And we tend to say, okay, well, that's the way that we can control other factors so that we can know for certain what happens. But that is to an extent a fiction.
0: Well, there are some artists that you cite who take a very specific interest in what parapsychologists and psychical researchers think of as Psy or the paranormal. One of the earliest you mentioned, I think, is Georgiana Houghton, who is uh, rather an unsung pioneer of abstract art, but you point out has also published
1: a book of spirit photographs. Yes, that surprised me. I became aware of her art just recently, and it was through becoming more aware of the art of Hilma af Clint who has become just well by known. And since I live in Sweden, I cannot avoid just uh, coming across her name almost every week. Uh, I live very close. To the largest city close to me is Malmö, and there is an exhibit on her. The director of the Malmö Museum is an expert on Hilma Klint. One of my students is a descent, not a direct descendant, but a, a relative of Hilma Klint. Uh, so it is all around me, and her life and work is extraordinarily interesting. Uh, I'll come back to Oriana Hotten in, in a moment, but suddenly you find out that there were these majestic, extraordinary, very large paintings that are of a series that have a communication that seek to affect the consciousness of the observer. And I know that some people. I know have been very strongly affected by her work, uh, and she was essentially on song until a few years ago, and so people started saying, "Well, we were talking about the the abstractionist being males, Kandinsky especially having created these new fig in this new movement, but here is this Swedish painter." Who did it a number of years before? And if you can take the case of Rihanna Houghton, somebody who had done it decades before. And it's beautiful her depictions. You have seen her art, I imagine. Indeed. Okay, and it is sort of uh, representations, gap, classifications of energies and strengths, and it is very vibrant art. I mean, both in a literal and a metaphoric sense. And that um, was something that I think partly probably has been the, uh, the consequence of our culture having neglected the production, the contribution of women. Many great women artists,
0: such as Hilma of Clint and Georgiana Houghton, seem to have been overlooked up until
1: recently. Yes. Yes. You see that in all kinds of areas, see it in science, in literature, uh, in drama, you know, uh, even though this paper is on visual arts, which interests me a lot, but I am not a visual arts scholar by any stretch of the imagination. It has just been something I have greatly admired. But as I tell people, I cannot even do a stick figure. I am just completely uh, incompetent to do anything visual. But my main artistic endeavor, if you will, is theater, that I have been a professional director and so on. And once you start scratching a bit, for example, on theories of acting, you find out that there has also been a current of theoreticians that have also been talking about a kind of direct energy transmission between actors and audience, something that goes beyond what can be described. So I think it is obvious because artists are more likely to feel more sensitively and more acutely than most other people do. So consequently, they are far more likely to have that combination, as you were starting to talk about, of things that have to do with alterations of consciousness, plus some sight, plus some uh, individual, unconscious, uh, dynamics and all of that put together is sometimes what make their art so interesting.
0: Well, one of the important uh, findings that you cite in your paper is uh, a very strong finding that comes up in parapsychology in numerous ways, I believe, that uh, people who are artistic, visual artists, and I think uh, musicians and poets, uh, all have a personality characteristic known as boundary thinness, which uh, correlates highly with uh, positive scoring on ESP tests.
1: Yeah, I would not say it correlates strongly because we lack information. Uh, we have done very little research, but I think it is a good speculation that probably it has a lot to do, and that is, in a sense, what one should expect because a person with thin boundaries, and that is a concept from uh, by Ernest Hartman, uh, the son of also a very eminent psychoanalyst, and Ernest Hartman himself, a, a very eminent researcher. I don't know what he's saying is. If you sort of divide people, there are those who are far more into the perceptual data and making strong boundaries. So the subjective is subjective, the objective is objective, and never the twain shall meet. And a person with twin boundaries is the opposite. Uh, The boundaries between what is my own thing and the world is is fluid. So... Reality is creating me and I am co-creating reality. Uh, When I am awake, I'm also having imaginations. So my consciousness is going back and forth. So if you take that as a, a parting point that the subjective and the objective are not something that can be separated strongly, then you have there a source for creativity. Because what is creativity? Something that hasn't existed, that is somehow in you, but it hasn't been there until your quote-unquote subjectivity makes it become alive, be, makes it become objective. And so what is objective and objective? It is both all, you know, a marriage when you get into modernist art of expressionist art and so on, it comes to a very large degree when people start questioning that clear, a very strong demarcation between objective and subjective.
0: You know, you did mention in, in your paper one study that I found fascinating. If I recall correctly, it was a Gansfeld study uh, where the probability of success is one in four. And a group of artists took the test and they were scoring at 50%, which is a double chance expectation.
1: Yes, that was a study by Merlin Schlitz and Charles Onerton. It was done with few participants but nonetheless I know that was strong effect but it has been replicated um, uh, right now I cannot recall her name but uh, a young British psychologist and parapsychologist uh, also did a study with artists and and found the same and Caroline Watt in a recent study was using art as one of the filters if you will for trying to get people who are, who were going to be more likely to do well in a Gansfield experiment. And she found a fairly strong result. It wasn't only artists. They could be artists or meditators. But again, it is people for whom the quote-unquote subjective is real. It is as real as the perceptual data that we can share. And that is what some artists have. There are some conceptual artists that I think are as objective and as cold and are perhaps only thinking about what is going to get me a lot of money. But I would say that has been more the exception, at least historically.
0: Well, one of the artists uh, who you write about, a very important figure historically, would be uh, Wassily Kandinsky, who, who was very self-consciously involved in, uh, esoteric culture, uh, theosophy, the paranormal, wrote a book, as I recall, on, uh, spirituality and, and art, and is considered one of the founders of the whole movement of abstract art.
1: Well, he, he has been considered the founder, perhaps with later on clay and so on, but he has been considered the founder or maybe Kokoshka, uh, until Hilma Clint, now some people are saying, well, now what do we do with this woman who was painting this very well-done paintings that are not supposed to be depicting anything that we see in everyday life? What do we call her? Can we still continue to be thinking of Kandinsky as the forefather? And I think, in a sense, it is silly. One should think there are probably things that were in the air that a number of people were getting into. But it is important to give credit to to a variety of forebears and not only to male. But yes, indeed, you're right, uh, of the spiritual in art of Kandinsky has been extremely influential. I know I I still have been carrying a book that I bought in Mexico decades ago. Many people had previously pointed out that expressionism had a lot of interest, or expressionists had a lot of interest in the occult, in tarot and spirituality. But in this paper, what I'm trying to say is, well, yes, that is true. But they were also very interested in, if you want to separate it a bit, into parapsychology authors, into parapsychology topics. And that is not exactly the same, because Kandinsky, yes, is interested in theosophy and Steiner and so on, but he was reading Psychical Researchers. And in a footnote, he's talking about scientists, mainstream scientists who were doing Psychical Research, and he mentioned seven of them. So he was reading at least seven different Psychical Researchers, which is, of course, far more than your typical parapsychologist skeptic who hasn't read any direct work or very few. And that was influencing him and all of the people who were following him and all of the people who were communicating with him. And that was part of that environment. And back then, it wasn't that division of is this science or not? This was this is what thinkers and scientists are considering. These ideas are not pseudoscientific. They are reasonable ideas when you are having to explain observations that challenge the kind of models we have had. So, I'm telling you something that, of course, you have been talking about for decades.
0: Well, I think many of our viewers may not realize that at the late 18th or 19th century, early 20th century, some of the leading scientists of that era, people like Sir Oliver Lodge, Sir William Crookes, William James, uh, who were at the forefront of the uh, British Society for Science, uh, the Royal Scientific Society and the like, were also deeply engaged in the study of spirituality, spiritualism, uh, parapsychology, and related fields.
1: Yes, and when you look at it, we have had a current of extraordinarily bright individuals who, when they are thinking, well, what does it all mean? Come to at least consider the ideas, if not the actual findings of psychical research or parapsychology. And uh, When I talk about extremely bright people, I do not only mean scientists, but I also mean some scientists. So there is a link that I'm sure you know, where I have been listing literally hundreds of very distinguished people, who are dead now, except for a couple of Nobel Prize winners. But I have there more than 30 Nobel Prize winners who express some interest or actually worked inside. Or in the case, uh, case of, of Albert Einstein, he wrote a foreword uh, to a book on mental telepathy, uh, but Max Planck was into it. Many other very distinguished people have been working at it. And that is something that, unfortunately, we haven't been saying enough. Because even when people say, OK, well, at the beginning, in the, at the founding of the Society for Psychical Research, we had Thompson, we had Lord Raleigh, uh, Nobel Prize winners. It seems as if, well, back then, perhaps, they did not know better. But now, <laughs> now that we know better, no one who is serious really Considers perhaps psychology or psi phenomena as something that is at least plausible, and that has not been the case because in that list you see people throughout all of these decades very eminent people who have been creators of a number of different new technologies, and all throughout we have had very eminent people saying, well, when when we come to it, when we come to the mystery of mind. It really is not very convincing to say well the only thing there is is that neurons fire and from there we get all our emotions and our thoughts and our notion of transcendence that hasn't been very persuasive to very bright people
0: and and surely many visual artists who are at the forefront of their field are also reading this literature. They're aware of leading-edge thinking in science and psychology and parapsychology and explorations of the unconscious. And they are translating that into their art forms.
1: Absolutely. And, and they also, I think, read theories or thoughts that are going to make sense, to, are going to be consistent with their own experiences. So when they read, let's say, something like Francis Crick say, stating something along the lines of all we are, are just synapses. I think, well, is that all? You know, I am a reflective being, being able to imagine infinities and being able to travel past, present and future at the very least in my imagination. Does that make a lot of sense? with what I experience every day. And I think the answer for most of them is, no, it does not. And yes, in parapsychology or related areas, we are very far from having many answers, but at least we are proposing that those types of events should be taken seriously, because that's where we part from. And even the materialistic theory is something that of course one should also point out the materialistic theory is coming from somebody creating something that was not there it comes from conscious sentient beings just working very assiduously are trying to deny that they are conscious sentient beings <laughs>
0: Well, one of the art movements which is probably most directly related to parapsychology would be surrealism. You point out that uh, the surrealists actually even conducted experiments.
1: Yes. And one of the things is that uh, earlier on before we started our chat, you were mentioning André Breton, uh, who was the the leader of the movement, and the historians have tended to think that All there was to the surrealist was to try to go into a Freudian kind of mode where they would get inspiration from their dreams. And yes, that was part of it, but there was much more because Breton was quoting Freud, but he was quoting the parapsychology author F.W.H. Myers, and he was talking about psi phenomena. And in perhaps his most famous book, Nadia, He's talking about a woman who certainly seems to have psychic abilities, and that fascinates him. And it fascinated a number of other people in surrealism. Uh, There is an artist that uh, I admire very much, Remedios Barro. She was originally from Spain and moved to Mexico. She was part of the surrealist movement. And she was interested in the, the works of Gurdjieff and Uspensky, was great friends of Leonora Carrington and other wonderful artists. But they were also very much convinced of the reality of Psy Phenomena. And they were trying to use it in their own work. So in the first uh, book that I edited, for example, I used one of her paintings, which co- which is called The Weaver of Verona. And it is beautiful, almost renaissance kind of drawing for a woman is sort of needing her soul or another part of her that starts floating away. You know, and, and what a way to say, yes, there is a part of us that can go someplace else, that can float, whether it is, quote unquote, in imagination or as an out-of-body experience or as a kind of side phenomenon when we are everywhere and where our sense of locality is just a limited sense, that is there in that painting. So it, it was part. There is even an anecdote, and I talked to the biographer um, of the surrealist, Robert Desnos, uh, who ended up being in a concentration camp, Nazi extermination camp. I think it was Auschwitz. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but he ended up being there. And the anecdote was that they were supposed to take them to be shot, to be killed. And uh, as he said, well, I'm going to read the poem of one of the other prisoners. And he started saying, oh, you are going to have a wonderful life, a very long and wonderful life. And then that all of the other prisoners started becoming very happy and that the, the Nazis became so, thr- so um, surprised by it that they did not carry out the extermination of that group. Now, I think that probably did not happen that way. But what seems to have been the case is that he continued sort of trying to read people's poems. And he was known by reading horoscopes and things of that sort. So maybe in some way before he died, and he died in the camp, uh, shortly before he died, he was trying to be able to perceive another type of reality than the horrible one in which he had been left. So there are all kinds of different routes where one can take the marriage between parapsychology and surrealism from the very intellectual thoughts and writings of Breton to people having uh, a precognition of their own demise to people anticipating that they were going to lose an eye This is something I mentioned in another paper, and in this one, Victor Braunberg, uh, a very good surrealist painter, uh, in one of his early self-portraits, has himself with an enucleated eye. So the eye has just popped out. And when he painted that, his eyes were completely fine. And he didn't get any disease. But then in the midst of a brawl, between Dominguez and somebody else, another artist, uh, he tries to pacify the two fighting artists, and one of them throws an ashtray, and it ends up going exactly into a corner of his eye and makes his his eye pop out. And so he ended, and he lost that eye, and he ended up repeating this many years before it happened. And I have been looking at his art. And yes, he painted unusual things, he was a surrealist, but in I haven't found any other depiction of anybody else without an eye, except for his self-portrait done a number of years ago. So you want to call it a coincidence? I would say, what a coincidence? And he himself did not think that it was a coincidence. He thought that he, had, that he was a visionary, that he had been able somewhere... perceive that and of course it makes sense with a lot of the literature of spontaneous side phenomena in which some people anticipate things very precisely and particularly these vital things that have to do with health issues with death and so on Uh, the other example this is not from visual arts it's from literature it's Federico Garcia Lorca one of my favorite poets and playwrights and in one of his not so well-known plays which would be translated into English as something like in five years. He, he writes about a character who is not accepting his own self, is not being brave enough, and at the end, he ends up get killed. And from the beginning of the play to the end of the play, exactly five years have elapsed. So he finishes the play, he dates it, and from that date, exactly five years to the day, he ended up being killed by the Franco troops, one of the Franco paramilitary groups. Five days exactly. So, again, one could say that's a coincidence, but that is one hell of a precise coincidence, if you ask me.
0: I think in your paper you also mention another uh, contemporary artist, uh sort of in the surrealist, psychedelic uh, vein, who who believed that one of his paintings had uh, foreseen the 9-11 event.
1: Yes, Gray. I don't remember just right now his first name, but it is Gray. And I have seen the painting, and yes, you see a tall building, and you see um, airplanes sort of crashing against it. And he did it before. Now, um, To me that sounds reasonable and you can talk to some of the clinicians who, psychoanalysts, who talk to people about their dreams and for example, Jim Carpenter has mentioned that some of his patients before 9-11 had had dreams about great crashes, great disasters. Now most of the time we, we do not have the knowledge to be able to foresee what is going to happen with great precision. But every once in a while, we do. So I think that uh, Gray might have been able to see something that was about to happen. And that was really not predictable because before 9-11, I don't think anybody thought that this was a plausible attack. Yes, a terrorist attack. Yes, a bombing maybe of a building. Yes, but using airplanes to essentially tumble this uh, enormous skyscraper, I don't think anybody had even imagined it.
0: I think that painting was from about 1986, five years or 15 years in advance.
1: Yeah, I don't remember when it was, but yes, it was a number of years before. And if you take seriously uh, precognition and so on, and some of the theories of block model of the universe, then even thinking about, well, is it 15 years or five years or one day, it really doesn't make much of a difference. It just seems that somehow... Things are seeping from the future into what we experience now, as well as from the past into what we can say now.
0: There are some artists who very self-consciously uh, develop works of art based on the findings of parapsychology or paranormal events such as those related to spiritualism. You point out, for example, the book by uh, the renowned fine art photographer Shannon Taggart called Seance, in in which it's it's an in-depth exploration of the spiritualist movement with photographs of uh, mediums in trance and uh, other photographs, some collected historically, some actually taken by her, of ectoplasm emerging from uh, spirit mediums.
1: Yes, and that, and she did it. I read the book and it is fascinating because She's saying that at the beginning, she thought this was going to be a a small uh, detour from her mainstream photography. And many years later, she's saying, well, I have seen things I cannot explain. And I'm sure that she could say there were things that I could explain that probably did not persuade me. But there were things that, that she could not explain. And it partly came from, I think it was a cousin of hers or so, who had had a reading, a very precise reading somebody who had told her some death as well in the family that was very accurate. So you have Taggart. You have, more recently, a number of great exhibits in some of the most renowned museums in the world where you have had artists have this as content of what they do. Susan Hiller, uh, who is the the object of another article in the same issue in which mine came out by Anna Iribas. Um, uh, She she was in the Tate Museum, in one of the Tate Museums, which is, I think, the most important modern art museum in the United Kingdom. And she had a very large exhibit, and she did all kinds of... uh, interesting inquiries into whether people could have shared dreams across distance. Uh, she used uh, what people may be saying about possible telepathy. So this for her was part and parcel of life, which of course it is. You know, once we do not think about, well, I'm doing research about this. I am being the author of this. This is the reality for many people. So why should it not be? one of the main contents of what artists want to depict when they say this is what life is all about the metropolitan museum had the exhibit on the uh, seance photographies the pompidou museum um, i would say quite likely the most important modern art museum in france had an exhibit on cyan art so uh, we have had i think a lot of acceptance of Psy into the art world in the last couple of decades. And I don't think that is going to abate because that, as we have been talking about, is something that artists not think about in abstract ways, do not read about as an interesting finding in articles. It is part of who they are and how they relate to the world and reality. You even point out
0: that uh, some artists, I think, is it Marina Abramovich, talk about the idea of using telepathy itself as an art form.
1: Uh, Yes, she is a um, performance artist, a very well known, one of the best known performance artists of the last few decades. Uh, Gilbert and George, I think, are their names. There was also a pair of British and you know they are talking about having telepathic connection with uh, with their artistic partners, and sometimes in the case of, uh, of Marina Abramovich, also her life partner. And you know, I am. Sure they are not conducting experiments. One cannot say have they controlled you know all of the situation to make sure that it is telepathy or not. But I think probably they can figure out. What are things that are coming from their spending life together and when there are things that are not just so easily explainable? And, you know, in a sense, uh, from my theatre background, I got interested into altered states and so on because of experiences I was having and some of them were along these lines of uh, working very intensely in a theater group with the same people, and suddenly you share some experiences that seem to be not physical, and you have to say, well, that that is real. Who knows how I should interpret it, but that did happen. So the, the
0: image, I think, that they're thinking of is that they – I could envision, for example, an artist is sitting alone in a bare room, and people enter that room, and images are conveyed to them telepathically by the artist.
1: Oh, <laughs> yes, well, this this was, uh, or this has been uh, the project of some conceptual artists, for example, to say, well, since the conceptual artists are more interested in the concept rather than in how this ends up coming to life with the use of oils or tempura or whatever. Uh, some of them have said, well, perhaps the, the most direct way to convey what we want to say is to have a telepathic imprint into people who come into this exhibit. Now, you know, I do not know how, how successful they were. Uh, and I imagine that it would be perhaps a mixed bag because When things happened to me in my life that I felt were more interesting, I was very much in the midst of being very intensely engaged in what I was doing. So let me give you an example. Again, this is not control research, but in a theater group, I recall that uh, I was uh, working with, uh, among other things, a Japanese martial artist, and a Mexican director, theater director, who later became very famous. And one of the the exercises was that the Japanese martial artist would be in the center of the group, and we were just surrounding him, and he has his kendo, uh, and he would bump us on the head unless we lifted our hand before by sensing that he was about to hit us. So we had to anticipate somehow that he was going to bump our head. Now, before you think, oh, well, you know, that's very easy to do. So you lift your hand all the time, except that if you lifted your hand and he was not thinking of hitting you, then he would hit you. And I recall, because I did the same kind of experiment with two different theater directors, but with him, uh, we We did not get along well. That, that uh, it was very clear to me. And I remember the day when he first did it. I was feeling sort of very clean, not having a lot of monkey mind or not having monkey mind. And I was thinking, no, today, no, you're not going to get me. And he didn't. So I did lift my hand a couple of times and I didn't get bumped and I did not lift it at another times. And everything was fine. There was another time when I remember I was tired. I was feeling not in the same space. of. I, I was just feeling hurts and stresses in my body and so on. And I got bumped. <laughs> <laughs> I got bumped more than once. But what was interesting is that, in a sense, our training was try to become more sensitive. Again, was this telepathy? Was this sort of hearing how he was turning. In a sense, who cares? Because in life you get a mixture, I think, of sensory and non-sensory information. We tend to want to split it out in experiments. But in real life, you just get a cocktail of things, the same as in art. Well,
0: it strikes me, Etzel, that in uh, the distant future, let us say hundreds, maybe a thousand years from now, uh, parapsychology might move from being a fringe science to being right at the center of our cultural identity. And when that occurs, it will affect the arts, it will affect theater, it will affect music it will affect all the walks of life. And the sorts of things we're discussing today are, in a way, to
1: me, intimations of what is yet to come. Well, I only go with you part of the way because I think it it has already happened. Because I would say what this paper and what it refers to shows is that it has already become not the central part of aspect of art, and I don't think there is, and I don't think that size should be the central aspect of life because there are many other things that are very important. Compassion, uh, ecological aspects, uh, trying to live fairly, uh, not abuse other people. There are many, many, many things that what could say, hey, that should be the central aspect. Caring for children should, you know, you, know, you could have a long list. But let's say, instead of say, saying one of the things that that nurtures mainstream. I would say it hasn't happened in science yet. Let's hope it will. But I would say it has been happening in art, particularly in the visual arts. Uh, So I would say maybe we do not need to wait for a hundred years. It has been happening. We just need to open our telepathic eyes more uh, and realize that it is there. And in literature, you will find that it is there. And as Jeff Kripal was been talking about, even in just popular culture, it has been there. So it is mostly to rescue it and say, this is part of who we are well Etzel Cardania this has
0: been a fascinating conversation I'm so delighted to connect with you and I'm looking forward to the second paper that you're planning and uh, a future interview with you as uh, things move forward thank you
1: so much Jeff and may you and uh, your audience listener stay safe uh, this year let's hope will be a more generous giving and fruitful year. So be well,
0: Jeff. Edsel, thank you for being with me. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.